Well, we are almost, we're getting drawing close to the end of our series that we've been looking at, uh, as I, uh, most of you who have been here, the series has been Defending the Faith, and we've looked at things, had a different sort of uh, series, I guess, looking at things a little bit more in a logical light and, and kind of uh, giving a lot of information, and hopefully that has been um, okay with you as we look at some ways in which uh, the Christian faith, I think, has been um, challenged in so many different ways, and we have, uh, and there's individuals uh, around us who who have lots of questions. In fact, there's uh, maybe some questions that we have as well. Questions like how how do I know that there's a God, or how do I know that the Bible is is true, or how do I know that Christianity is true, and and that all other religions are false, or how do I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and can or do or will do what he said he would do? Or how do I know that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and uh, was a suitable sacrifice for sin? Questions like, how do I know that when I die, I will go to heaven and spend eternity with God? And these are important questions. I think, simply put it, simply put, how do I know that Jesus is who he said he was and is and did what Christianity claims that he did, that he provided salvation and he provided forgiveness um, for us and um, uh, again some very very important questions I think that deserve answers and <clears throat> one of the things that I want to do today and I, I kind of hinted at this last week that we were going to kind of give you a little bit of taste of Easter in the coming the next couple of weeks and um, before we talk about Christmas and I think that those two really are <clears throat> those those ideas of Easter uh, the the, uh, the crucifixion the death burial resurrection of Jesus Christ are very much in line with a theme that can we ought to be uh, at least aware of um, the Easter or the death, burial, resurrection theme ought to be in our minds as we approach Christmas. And so it may be a little unorthodox in terms of uh, maybe the way that we're used to doing things, but we're going to be kind of talking a little bit about some of that. And, and basically the answer to those questions, uh, you might be surprised, but um, the answer that I'm going to give today as far as some of those questions that we might have is, is really just one answer that I want to give you and, and then I want to just kind of share some reasons to trust that answer that, that I think will satisfy every one of those questions and become one more piece of evidence in what is an overwhelming case, I would say, for, for Christianity. But the answer is found simply in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm, I'm uh, amazed if you, uh, you ought to try this sometime as you're reading through the, through the New Testament, particularly the books of Paul, some of the letters that he has, um, um, particularly his letter, well, all of that from, from the, not from the end of the gospel, from the book of Acts all the way through the end of Revelation, how much the resurrection theme is, is really brought up because that is really something that is, has been, um, that was pounded upon, um, that was brought to light over and over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm reminded of um, what Paul said in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He said that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection that means that the resurrection is evidence to the radical claims of Jesus Christ and 
to the claims of Christianity. Billy Graham once wrote, or he once said, that if I were an enemy, this is him speaking, he said, if I were an enemy of Christianity, I would take aim at the resurrection because it is the heart of Christianity. In fact, uh, the, the resurrection cla- uh, separates Christianity from every other religion. Christianity begins where every other religion ends. Every other religion or world religion can point to a founding father, and they can also point to a grave. But that's where the stories end. And Christianity, on the other hand, points to a tomb, but that is not the end of the story, because as you all well know, the tomb is empty. A couple weeks ago, I told you that everything hinges on Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh and the only way to heaven, or Christianity is a useless lie. And so we looked at some of the evidence for who Jesus is, and, and, and so we saw how he perfectly fit the fingerprint of the Old Testament prophecies. And we noted how he spoke and how, how everyone around him, you know, the Bible says that they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. But we noted the life that he lived and, and the miracles that he that he performed it, that, that showed that Jesus had this power over nature and he had this power over the supernatural and, 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 and even over a power over death itself. But in spite of all of those proofs, the, the ultimate test, at least in my mind, is, is his resurrection. If, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then none of the other wonderful things concerning his life really make a difference at all. And I think the Apostle Paul knew this because, well, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are, more than, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If Christ has not been raised, then there is no payment for sin, which means that Christ's sacrifice was, was rejected. If Christ has not been raised, then there's no forgiveness of sin. If Christ has not been raised, there's no access to God Himself. If if, if Christ has not been raised, there's no salvation. And we are still objects of God's wrath with no way to escape. If Christ has not been raised, then for you and I there is no hope beyond the grave. See, if the tomb is not empty and Christ is dead then so is our faith. It is in vain. If he is not alive, then as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, he said, let us all eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, I believe that the resurrection confirms the man and the message. Jesus fully intended, I believe, for us to accept or to reject who he claimed to be and what he taught based upon his resurrection. And what's interesting is that Jesus even predicted his resurrection. 
You look at John chapter 2, verse 19, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, and the people looked at Jesus and they said, well, well give us a, a sign, Jesus. Give us a sign. When will this happen? You remember what Jesus said? It's found in several different passages, but I'll read the one in Matthew chapter 12. He says this, he said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will give, be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Remember that? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. If we sift through everything that we've looked at in this series, we are still left with one major question. Everything else, I believe, hinges on this. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? A few weeks ago, uh, or a few years ago, News, Newsweek ran this article that was entitled uh, something like Rethinking the Resurrection. And uh, in this, they said that, that some biblical scholars, and, and mind you, they're using that term, Newsweek magazine is using that term rather loosely when they talk about biblical scholars, but they said that biblical scholars argued that the gospel stories of an empty tomb and Jesus, and of Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection are fictitious, that they were made up long after his death in order to justify his claims. So that's what the article was written. And you, you can probably hear and, 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 and read about many uh, similar stories or articles that co are coming up these days, uh, documentaries that are supposed to be uh, spiritual documentaries on, on um on, on the church and on Christianity uh, that we see on the news, or not news, but uh, on, on the television set, and that there's, they're rethinking a lot of things and they're changing things and they're trying to make, make us to, uh, in some ways, doubt what we believe. Uh, according, here's some, something that's interesting, is that according to a Barna Research Group, the Barna group, Research Group, 30% of professing Christians do not believe that Jesus came back to physical life after he was crucified. Um, this is the way one professor from Vanderbilt said this. He said that the resurrection is an empty formula that must be rejected, listen to this, by anyone holding to a scientific worldview. Well, I would take issue with that. But what's happened within the past uh, number of years, 40, 50, maybe maybe uh, 75 years, is that a number of people, they have set out to try and to offer some explanations against the resurrection. And so what I want to just do in the time that we have left today is just share some of the, the myths that have been made in an attempt to prove that, there, you know, that our belief in, in the resurrection is unwarranted. And it's, as you listen to some of them, um, well, in addition to that, what I want to do is I want to provide you with some proofs that uh, for the resurrection of Christ. But let me just say this. Some of you may be familiar with the old hymn, Who Sings It? He Lives. Who sings that? No, it's not Gaither. Anyway, how many of you are you familiar with that? Uh, 
You know, and, and, you know, the words go something like this. You can probably read. You can probably voice them with me. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living. Whatever men may say, I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. So how does it go? He lives. He lives. He li- Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's a pretty cool song. And um, now I would be the first to admit to you that one of the greatest testimonies to the person of Jesus Christ, to, to what he has done, what uh, not, not uh, certainly we haven't seen the resurrection firsthand in terms of being there, but we have experienced what the, what the resurrection has done for us, I would be the first to tell you that our testimonies to, the, to that and to the fact that he lives today, that he was raised from the grave, is your, own personal, uh, is your own personal experience of Christ in your life. That's the greatest testimony that we can have. Now, that being said, such a private experience, though important, though valuable, though in many, many cases are, is incredible and is not always, but it's not always sufficient. Because the truth of the matter is that you and I may, in fact, be asked to provide more objective facts or reasons than just our personal experience. Um, I think that the, where our personal experience comes into play oftentimes is, is when we build relationships with people and people see our lives and they see us living out our lives. But there are times, and, and I've certainly met those people who, who want to know some more objective, objective things rather than, oh, he is in your heart, you say. Um, again, not trying to discount that. Great song. Um, love that song. Believe it. You know, he lives within my heart. But, you know, one of the most wonderful and I think and amazing things about God, though, is that he knew that we would want and even need some evidence even Thomas, one of his disciples, remember? One, uh, he wanted evidence of the resurrection. Let me see your hands. Let me see your side. And Christianity as a religion is rooted in history, and it, it just makes, it makes claims that, that I believe can actually be investigated historically. So what are some of the facts about the death of Jesus that no one disputes? Well, according to the testimony of both Christian and non-Christian Historical documents, for example, the Gospels, obviously, but then the historian Josephus or Pliny the Younger or the Jewish Talmud, uh, just to name a few, according to some of those Christian, both Christian and non-Christian documents, it is undisputed that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who lived, who was crucified, who died and was buried in a tomb. And three days after the death of Jesus, his tomb was empty. Those are undisputed facts. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, what best explains why or how the body of Jesus went missing? So I want to look at uh, how to really kind of dismantle some several resurrection myths that fail to account for all of the facts. And so one of the myths that we have that people have written extensively on um, is the idea that, number one, 
Jesus was faking it. Jesus faked his resurrection. This has many different, I mean, there's a lot of, this is not a new thing. It's been around for over a couple hundred years at least. Then, and various people have, have, have kind of come in and, in different times in history and have tried to weigh in on this and, you know, all the way from he, he, he had this, this Messiah complex and felt like he had to somehow let people, he believed it and, and somehow he had to, he, he looked in the Old Testament and saw all the things of, that the Messiah was, gonna, was supposed to uh, accomplish and, and so he tried to, the way he lived his life, somehow project, at least in people's minds, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And so this is otherwise known as what's called a swoon theory. And it claims that Jesus fainted on the cross and he awoke in the tomb. And and, and, and certainly this is a myth, but because the Romans, uh, this is why I believe, the Romans were very good at executing people via crucifixions. To think that Jesus faked, you know, his, you know, he, he went, his death, he, he went to the cross, we know that, but the, the, that he faked that he was dead when he came down off the cross, it just seems ludicrous. I mean, you think about some of the evidence of that. You think about uh, Jesus' gaping wounds from the floggings that he had and the beatings, and we've, we've been through before talking about the cat of nine tails and the things that they did with him. There would have been dislocated shoulders and in a pierced side from the crucifixion. We've got that whole writing of, of the blood that was leaking out. And, but, you know, think about that. Even if he had survived all that, even if he had survived the asphyxiation from being nailed to the cross for hours, in his very poor health, he would have needed to roll away a heavy stone while essentially locked inside of a tomb. All of that seems more unlikely than an actual resurrection. So that's one of the theories that have been out there. And, and uh, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of people who have written extensively on things like this and, and the other ones that we're going to have. The second theory, uh, the second uh, myth, is that Jesus had a twin brother. Isn't that a good one? So this is not an, this is not an old or not a new one either. It's the twin theory, and it says that Jesus basically had an identical twin who remained hidden all of his life. And aside from the fact that there is no documentary evidence whatsoever to support such a myth, it doesn't actually account for the missing body from the tomb, right? If he had a twin brother who died in his place, the other brother would have have needed to steal the body from the tomb. Um, So it just doesn't seem really like a reliable... um, story or or explanation for what that was the third one this is probably one that's fairly fairly common and that is that the the third myth is that the body of jesus was stolen the body of jesus was stolen and the stolen body theory says that that the body of jesus was stolen by someone obviously you know we you know who that was we don't know but the question is who had the motive to steal his body I mean, certainly the Romans and the Jews didn't. They, they, they had every desire to want Christianity to die. And so it was in their interest to make sure that his body remained in that tomb. The disciples certainly didn't have any motive because 
well, they believe the Messiah uh, was was dead, and here, here's their 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 Messiah, and 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 they mourned his death as if he were never coming back. In fact, they fled in fear. So it's it's really highly unlikely that they would have been willing to be imprisoned and tortured and and beaten and killed for preaching the resurrection of a body that they had stolen. I mean, who would suffer so much for such a lie? Uh, More questionable is the fact that in order to steal the body, they would have needed to have gotten past the Roman guards. Uh, You know, there's a group actually that claims that aliens stole the body of Jesus. Um, First of all, (laughs) uh, you'd have to prove that aliens exist. Well, they do. We've got a bunch of aliens in this room, right? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we are aliens uh, in this world? But that's not what they're talking about. I, I think they're maybe talking about Martians. But, but you'd first have to prove that aliens exist, and, and then you'd have to prove to, that aliens cared enough about some first century Jew out of all the periods of history and all the people who have ever lived. They'd have to care about some first century Jew in order to steal his body. This, which is a view I think that is more unbelievable than the resurrection of Jesus as well. The fourth myth is that a bunch of people were hallucinating. Um, you got mass hallucination. It's called the hallucination theory, and it claims that Jesus' disciples and others experienced that mass hallucination. Uh, the only problem with that theory is that it doesn't deal with actual hallucinations which are really restricted to individuals, not to groups. Uh, Certainly, groups may experience mass hysteria or illusions, but this is very different from hallucination and and is certainly evoked by fear. Uh, I don't know if they're thinking of things like the Jim Jones type things and somehow that's what's happened. But in any case, people experiencing mass hysteria wouldn't respond the way these earliest followers of Jesus did. How did they respond? They went out after they found out that Jesus was risen and proclaimed the gospel and they died for their faith in the risen Christ. But to claim that over 3,000 people shared, you know, if you look at the early church, to share that that, that 3,000 people shared the same exact hallucination at the same time, and then recalled everything in the very same way, that just doesn't seem compelling. The only thing that people experience on such a mass scale is mass hysteria. So let's just say, for argument's sake, that thousands of people did hallucinate on a mass scale. What happened to the body of Jesus? If if, if early Christians were just making up a resurrection story, all that anyone opposed to the faith would have to do is produce a body. That would have stopped the nonsense right from the very beginning. And, and of course, the, this theory doesn't help solve the actual problem, and that is that the tomb was empty. So that's theory number four, the hallucination, grand hallucination theory. Um, it's a myth. Uh, the, the fifth myth is that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. So I know this sounds kind of crazy when, you, when we hear it. We hear all this and kind of go, huh? But people are actually advocating. Why do, you, why do you think that they're asking? Why do you think that they're advocating for any of these myths? Anybody? They don't want Jesus to be risen. 
right? Because as we said from the very beginning, if Jesus is not raised, then we are, then, then are, then we are most to be pitied among all of, all of people. Uh, the fifth uh, myth is uh, the wrong tomb theory says that the disciples found the wrong tomb and just assumed that it was empty or just assumed that it was empty. It, this uh, is such a lame theory. It really is because all the Romans, all the Jews would have had to do was to point people to the right tomb in order to prove that the Christians were lying. It just makes a lot of sense. All the enemies of early Christianity had to do was just to produce the dead body and that would have put an end to Christianity once and for all. And of course, that's not what happened. Instead, we're told that the Jews claimed the, bo- the disciples stole the body, but we've already, already observed, as we've already observed, that's not plausible either. A sixth legend, or a sixth um, myth, is that this whole thing was a legend. Okay? The legend theory states that there's a difference between the Jesus who lived in history and the Jesus in whom people believe. There's a difference between the actual man who lived in history and what we've come in who we've come to know as Jesus. The problem with this myth is that we have evidence that Christians in the first century believed in the same Jesus that history gives us. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, I want you to, I, I, I don't know if I read this. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm, I'm actually going to read this. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, I don't think I have it up here, but Paul says, For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, Those, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he says, I received this and I pass this on to you, this tradition. Um, so... That's what he's telling us. He's passing down this tradition that he received. And so you think about that whole thing. If Paul became a Christian between, say, 31 uh, A.D. and 35 A.D., and this tradition here precedes his conversion story, then the tradition that he received was already established tradition within five years of the empty tomb. That's just simply too little time for the resurrection story to become legend. And that means that the earliest Christians believed the same story that you and I as Christians believe today. The Christ of history is the Christ of faith. They are one and the same. And then one more myth that I thought I'd share with you, and that is that the, uh, the Quran says that the disciples imagined that Jesus rose from the dead. The Quran theory uh, is based upon what is recorded in the religious textbook of Islam, which claims that they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but so it was made to appear. 
but rather they, it goes on to say that Allah raised him up toward himself and Allah is almighty and all wise, so says the Quran. Um, the main concern that, that I would have or anyone else would have with trusting that as a, as a credible source is that it was written between A.D. 609 and A.D. 632, which is about 600 years after all of the other, other sources that were, uh, all other sources that were written that described the events of the first century. Whenever we investigate history, it's probably best not to start with the later sources like the Quran if we want to understand events that took place hundreds of years before it was written. So, in other words, if I wanted to learn more about the Holocaust, for example, um, I would go to eyewitnesses who experienced the Holocaust firsthand, someone like, a, well, I can't do that anymore, but somebody like a Corey Ten Boom. Uh, you would want to go and talk with some of those people, maybe some soldiers who actually were, had, had gone through and, and experienced some of that firsthand before before I would actually go in to ask uh, maybe some of my peers what they think. Because the key is to find the earliest accounts of the empty tomb, not the latest. When we look at the earliest documents, this imaginative theory just doesn't hold up to any serious scrutiny, and it just is not credible. There's a book that was written in 2001 by a fellow by the name of uh, Hank Hanegraaff. And it's about 200 pages long. It's, it's, uh, it's simply entitled Resurrection. And I would encourage you, uh, if you want to read in, into this more, a lot of what we've been saying here and, and other things, but um, I'd encourage you to read that, just to, to get a hold of that little book. Uh, 2001, it was written. Uh, it's called Resurrection by Hank Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but... But Hank, in that book, he uses an acrostic that I just want to give you today, just, to, just very briefly, just to help you to remember why we can believe in the resurrection. So we're going to be looking at that acrostic, and the acrostic is feet. Not feet as in our feet, but F-E-A-T, um, feet. And the F, in fact, stands for fatal wounds. These are reasons that we can believe in the resurrections. So just briefly, what does that mean? Some of the things we've already said, um, but there is no fainting. There is no swooning. When you think about things like the, the, the turmoil that Jesus had in the garden, when you think about the fact that you know, the gospel writers talk about Jesus as, as, as he, the, the enormous stress that he was under and that, that he endured, enough to cause him to sweat blood drops of blood, a, a, a common uh, something that is um, that is known to to our medical professionals, and and but then you factor in the crucifixion of himself, the beatings and the 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 extreme torture that, that was carried out through the the thing uh, uh, the the um, through crucifixion, but carried out by professionals who were skilled in inflicting pain. When you look at all of those things and you start to go down, and how many of you have ever seen where they actually go through the whole, his body on the cross and what he would have to do to push up on the nails and then, and then he'd sink back down because of the pain and, and the whole struggle to breathe and everything else. You go, you know, after having, having suffered the, the cat of nine, uh, nine tails, 39 
you know, um, lashes with that big old metal glassy thing or whatever. Um, the conclusion I think that you come to is Jesus died on that cross. <laughs> uh, the Journal of American Medicine, a medical society actually, uh, clearly said that clearly the weight of historical and medical, this, is, this to me goes against that whole idea that it, it can't be proven scientifically, but the, 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 that journal says that clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. And it goes on to say, accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So the F stands for fatal wounds. The E stands for empty tomb. Jesus' body was not misplaced. It was too important to all the parties involved. But here's the million-dollar question. If they did go to the right tomb... If they didn't go to the right tomb, wouldn't it have been easy for the Roman and Jewish authorities to simply take them to the right tomb and produce the body? And at that point, everything would have been stopped and Christianity would have died. And so, summing up, uh, the empty tomb is um, that Jesus' body wasn't misplaced. Um, third, the A stands for F, E, F, uh, fatal wounds, E, empty tomb, A, appearances of Jesus. The gospel record, the, uh, the Gospels record a number of appearances that Jesus made to several people af- after his resurrection. It talks about Mary, Mother, uh, Mary Magdalene, talks about the, the other women, quote, other women. There's, you know, he appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and then he would have uh, re- records of a number of times in the Gospels when he appeared to his disciples at various times in different ways or different places. But the Apostle Paul goes a little bit further than that, and I want to just read again 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where he says, After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And he goes on and talks about James and John, and then, then, then to me, and he's speaking of his road to Emmaus, or I'm sorry, his, his, uh, when he was on his road, on the road to, um, um, oh, when Paul was on the road to Damascus. There we go. I had Emmaus in my, in my head. But, but it's as if the Bible is saying to us, you know, if you don't believe, here, here are people with names. And if you want more names, we're going to give you 500 more, and you can go and ask them for yourself, right? And Lee, Lee Strobel puts this in perspective. He, he asks how many eyewitnesses it would take to convict or acquit someone in, the, in, the, in a court of law today. He says, if we were holding a trial on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a court of law, and we were going to listen to each of them and give them and give only 15 minutes to testify. He says it would take 128 straight hours of testimony over five days of testimony. That would be um, incredible. The T stands for transformation of the disciples. They were just the, the, they were just transformed. The disciples were. I mean, you look at. After the resurrection or after the crucifixion, what they did, they, they all ran and they hid and they hide and they were afraid for their lives. They thought that the, the government was coming after them. But then after the resurrection, here's this cowardly group of men, of disciples, who, who all of a sudden became a courageous and fearless band of preachers who were willing to die for their faith. In fact, there were, uh, out of all of the 11 remaining disciples, 
10 of them, not, not John. John is the only one that died an old man. But all of the other ones died brutally, brutally, brutal, brutal deaths. But all of them willing to, to die for their faith. Liars just don't make good martyrs. The only thing that could account for that kind of change was the resurrected Christ. And then think of this. You got five weeks after the resurrection, 10,000 Jews became followers of Christ, the same Jews who had witnessed the crucifixion and applauded it. They became followers of Christ. Now, what would account for that? I mean, these were men and women and people who would abandon their social, their religious institutions that had been in place for over 1,500 years and ingrained in their thinking in order, worship, in order to worship Jesus Christ. The only possibility that makes sense of all of that data that we have on record is the fact of the resurrection. The, the Apostle Paul admitted it this way. He said, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The most vulnerable point of Christianity is the resurrection account. And yet at the same time, and I close with this, it is a point that makes Christianity unshakable. Father, we thank you for what you've done. And we believe in the resurrection. And we believe that someday that our bodies too will be resurrected and that we will spend eternity with you in your presence. So God, we just thank you that you can remind us of today just of how, how solid your word is. We pray that these things would, would not just help us to, to be able to answer those around us who have objections to these things, but that it would cause us to be bold in our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.